eye to the simulation in the mind. Let's all embark on another journey of Conversations on the Fringe. All right. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. My name is Josh. That is Tyler, my guest for tonight. This is the Red Pill Project's Conversations on the Fringe. This is where we take a, a break from all the politics and the chaos in the world, and we talk about the conversations that aren't normally had amongst human beings, the campfire conversations, I like to call them, the things that expand the mind beyond the absolute norm. And tonight, <laughs> we're in for a treat. Cymatics, vibration, and conscious technology with Tyler, who's also known as BaseForge on TikTok. Talk. Tyler, how you doing tonight, my man? Fantastic. How are you? I'm doing well, man. I appreciate you coming on. Uh, we were talking about this last night, and a lot of people are like, oh, my God, I, I know that guy I'm from TikTok, and they were excited that you were coming on with us. Um, your videos on TikTok have really taken off, and you uh, have compiled a good set of information about ancient technologies, cymatics, and how ancient cultures were probably way more technologically advanced than we could even understand today. You know, my, my question to really start this off to the conversation is, is how did you get into all this? Uh, so I, I started off in college. I got a degree in uh, electrical engineering, and I really didn't like the how they boxed you into doing one thing. And uh, so I, I quit doing that, and I started a business and get, got, you know, my hands in a whole bunch of other stuff. Since I wasn't, you know, tied down by an employer, I could kind of just research and do whatever I wanted. And uh, then I got into music, which led into the cymatics, and all of those things seemed to like weave together. And um, the, making those connections, I was like, "This, there's something is tying everything together." And that just went down the rabbit hole of the occult and ancient technology and all of those things. And every time I went into something new, it made another connection. And I was like, "Okay, I got to write all this down." So I had this giant note in my phone that was probably like. If I showed you, you'd be like, oh, dude, you can't. <laughs> That's ridiculous. I but got a few I, of them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, so I deconstructed that and I was like, you know what? I'm going to make a TikTok and just start talking about this. I didn't tell any of my friends or my family. I was like, I'm just going to, I feel like doing this. And one of them took off and I was like, okay, well, pe other people are interested in this. So then I just opened the floodgates and it's been pretty good ever since. So. <laughs> So, so it was from the patterns that you were observing in nature that led you down the road to kind of take in more information pertaining to kind of what we would consider to be the esoteric mysteries and the occult. Now, what were your first discoveries there specifically within the occult? Where did you start? Where did, did you know where to start? Like, how did that journey go? So I got into music. I'm, I'm really, really deep in the EDM community. I've been DJing for six years now. Um, and I... There's a part of the EDM community, you have to understand that there's like a party part, and then there's like the spiritual part of the community. And the spiritual part was the stuff that I really resonated with. And um, I started getting into that, and I was like, these guys, they, their music sounds different. They know something. There's something that's, that's clicking for them that's not clicking for me. And I started looking into that and I started, they, they use a lot of symbols and their visuals. And I was like, what does all of this mean? I don't know what it means, but I love the music. I really resonate with it. And so I started digging into that and then COVID it. And so I was stuck at home and I was making a ton of music. And one day I was just chilling in the house and it was super hot outside. And I, I didn't want to do anything. And I put a, a YouTube video on. And it was, I can't remember what video it was, but someone was like, yeah, we still don't know how the pyramids are built. And I was like, that's bullshit. We, it's 2023. Someone's figured this out, right? So I opened that door and then just all the, the floodgates opened. I was like, there's no, no way we don't know. And you keep digging and digging and the, the 
man, we could do a whole episode on that. But yeah. the mysteries of that alone were like, okay, something is going on in reality. That's not what I was told. It, this is not all there is. And so that was kind of m my door opening into the occult research. Okay, cool. And, and so the pyramids, I think, are a great place to start, too, because when you start looking at the Giza Plateau, there, there's various problems that come about. Number one is the Sphinx is much, much older than the Great Pyramid. And then the Great Pyramid itself has this awkward alignment. It has this geographic positioning of where the, the latitude and longitude lines are equivalent to the actual numbers utilized in the speed of light. And this would yeah. be translatory in the sense of how the Egyptians' measurements work and the Greek measurements to modern-day measurements. Um, and then you start getting into the Great Pyramid, you start finding various stellar alignments from 10,500, 12,000 years ago. You start seeing that it was most likely prominent in the age of, uh, of Taurus, or sorry, of, of Taurus, and then the Sphinx was more prominent within the age of Leo, in the sense of the alignments. Um, and, and that's kind of one of the things that got me too in the early 1990s. I started um, listening to Coast to Coast AM, which was Art Bell at the time, Dreamland. And late night getting stoned at 12, 13 years of age, just smoking weed. I'll do it. <laughs> yeah. Get, you're in a car with a bunch of buddies and there's yeah. nothing on at one in the morning. So you turn on AM radio. There's uh, Art Bell of Dreamland talking about UFOs, aliens, and <laughs> the Great Pyramids and forbidden archaeology. And yeah. so – you know, you start getting into this and you're like, whoa, man, I got to learn more about this stuff. Like, this is a mystery that I want to delve into. And you delve into it. It's quite literally the mysteries. Because yeah. once you go into it, you start uncovering the fact that, firstly, is that modern science, archaeology, don't know shit. They're just making shit up as they go along. Yeah. Then these other researchers, these independent researchers that are going down the rabbit hole. They don't know 90% of the facts, they're just stringing it together from what yeah. they're getting. But then there becomes this underlining pattern that we see through ancient architecture. We see this correlative pattern, and this is reminiscent within the mythological and the allegorical stories that we see coming out of these times as well. And this is that there was some level of communication between ancient cultures, even though there is vast distances of separation, that the architecture has some representation of symbology. The symbology is uh, derived, if we understand it, through the, the, the derivation of the plutonic solids, which have a representation as well of cymatic patterns as we know now. I mean, in the 90s, they weren't talking about that stuff. Yeah. Um, in that there is a relationship to how they built their structures with the sacred geometry setup of the planet, as well as the procession of the equinoxes and the larger grand calendar cycles of our solar system's transit around the galaxy. And, and then this other basis of consciousness integration to all of that. At least that's what I've noticed throughout the years. And I think that you noticed that as well. But these are the things that we all know. But that that's really where it ends everything else is a deep compounded mystery yeah very very deep and it's it's hard to like you said it's hard to tell the people that are doing independent research sometimes they have really good pieces of this puzzle but they go off completely left field like so mm -hmm. far that they almost discredit what they they discover by going down like a a, a path that like people don't really resonate with they're like you can't prove it and it's pure speculation so you're just like you, you kind of discredit yourself. So what, what I tried to do was I listened to a lot of fringe stuff, like even stuff that people that I don't really resonate with. I, I think there's, there's nuggets of truth in there that you can pull out and use as your own piece of personal truth. 
And so I just have compiled a lot of those and try and relate them in a way using science and using spirituality, religion, ancient history. And I'm trying to connect them because everyone resonates with a different thing. You know, if I speak, if I speak in a way that a, a Christian will resonate with, then I can say a lot more than if I come at it from a Hindu perspective. So mm-hmm. it, it's all about trying to hit it and try and get that message across to the, the most amount of people in the way that's not disrespectful to their culture and stuff as well. Like, I, I don't really get a lot of hate from from those people, but but I do get a lot of backlash for using uh, scientific concepts to prove spirituality. That's really the only thing. My my entire community is is so far been the best people on the planet, except for the people that are like, this isn't real science. You need to do this and this and this. Even if I put studies and stuff in proving it, that I still get a lot of backlash for that. So finding that way of communicating and relating those ideas is is exceptionally difficult. You know, it's interesting that you said that you, that you seek to use science to prove kind of the mysteries or to prove this understanding of spirituality. Uh, and that's one of the things that I set out on a long time ago, a little over a, a decade ago. I got into various points of uh, – I was a member of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. I got into Enochian Magic. Uh, I started studying really deeply into what is considered to be the mysteries. Mm-hmm. And from that – weird shit began happening in my life. Like I can't even begin to say the, the weirdness I've I've talked about some of the stories, but it was crazy. I mean, out of body experiences, uh, transcending what I call transcending the state. I mean, I've done a lot of drugs in my life. I grew up 12 years old, eating acid till I was 18. I tripped well over probably five, 600 times. Um, and I I'm, I'm fortunate. I'm one of the fortunate ones that, that made it out of that drug era. Yeah. But, I have a really expansive nine. So I, I always wanted to connect that because I have a, a, a very profound understanding of science, physics, quantum physics, and how all this stuff integrates together. And so I actually went out there and, and like I was telling you, I, I went back to school to kind of learn uh, maybe some things that I missed and how to integrate that back in. And I was looking from an astral theological standpoint when I first started doing it, but I got more um involved on the quantum side and understanding the dynamics of spirit, nature, and mind, and the integratory framework. And I started to realize that these ancient cultures, um, when we start talking about mythology, for instance, we have in the Hindu pantheon, we got hundreds, if not thousands of various different gods in the Greek pantheon, hundreds of gods. And, you know, other pantheons, we have hundreds of gods all over the place, but we can actually eliminate them down to about seven to 12 primary deities in the sense of the archetypical nature of who they are. And this is one of the things that I did through my research. And what I started to find out is that there was a correlation between those and the various different cycles and processes that our solar system and our galaxy and our sun and cosmic energy bombardment all go through. And the one thing that they all have in common is energy, that everything is basically a transmutation of energy, a transference of energy, a relationship of energy, mm-hmm. and that we are incredibly susceptible to that. So I, I, I developed what's known as optimization theory. And really optimization theory states that everything is in relation. Everything is a state is an energy state in relation to another energy state and moving to a point of optimization that nothing ever goes to this point of entropy as modern science would tell you entropy or chaos or when we go back to do this zeroness where everything just fizzles out and dies it doesn't actually exist. Yeah, I look at it very similar to destructive interference in in waves, Mm -hmm. right? If we have a transmitter and receiver both sending a wave out. 
if one is 180 degrees out of phase with the other one, they're going to cancel each other out in the center. But yet we still have a transmitter and we still have a receiver. We still have energy inputted for the signaling. Now, if we send uh, another signal perpendicular to that, we're going to get wave interference in that primary canceled wave. What is that telling you? That means it's in a state of optimization even though it's cancelization, it's in a state of optimization because we still have the energy inputted into the system. Yeah. And I believe that that's what primary functions of the universe operate at, that it's two um, systems coming together, coalescing, converging, that are producing a new emergent state and that reality occurs at this emergent state. I know that's probably way too much for this conversation. I tend to go off on tangents, but I, I want your theories on the sense of what you've discovered. What have you discovered about the nature of reality? What ha in, in your research, being an electrical engineer, what are the, the, the things that you have discovered for yourself that are ahas, that are epiphanies, that are enlightening to you? A lot of unpack there. I want to I address a couple of things there. So what the, the interference that you're talking about is one side of the, of the coin. The other side mm -hmm. I, would, I would consider as harmonic resonance. And that meaning that if you have two waves that are exactly the same, then they sum and create a bigger wave, correct? So that I would say is the the stable form and what everything is trying to achieve. We are always if you put there's a phenomenon if you put two metronomes on a uh, a moving bass and you, they're off sync, they will sync up with each other yep. just because of their their uh, resonance, right? So I think the universe does want to fall in it, into a naturally harmonious state, and that is the natural resting state. But um, that. A lot of those aspects came from the cymatics part of um, my research. I, I would say that's probably the main thing I do just because music is is so closely related to that. But um, before we go into that, you said the Hindu pantheon has, you know, is is very rich, very diverse and very, very, very hard to you, you could look into that entire culture for years and not be even scratching the surface of the knowledge mm -hmm. that they have. But I think what a, a lot of people overlook is the similarities between I would what I would call the big three, which um, would be Greece and um, Egypt, and I would throw Mesoamerica in there. I mean, you have you have a lot more, but those are like the most heavily studied, right? There's a lot of similarities between them, but there's also I think what what the genius thing that Christianity did is it took all of those and packaged it up into a a perfect almost like way of, of transmitting that knowledge. Because if you think about it, the, the Hindu pantheon has, you know, seven to 12 um, like main deities, right? Mm -hmm. If you look at the, the last supper, there's, you know, 12 disciples and then you have your um, saints and your uh, you know, the, the cathedrals are built after these people. So I, I would consider that a pantheon in itself. Maybe people don't look at it that way from a religious perspective. I just am looking at it objectively. A, you know, a Christian's going to look at this way differently, but I'm trying to connect the similarities between those. And to me, that's lo that looks like what it was. Now, linking that all together with reality, I've been, I've been uh, really, really looking into um, cathedrals. Like the cathedrals are damn near as mysterious as the pyramids. And there's, you know, hundreds and hundreds of them. And so one of the things that I've been really looking into is the, the cymatics of them and their relation to what exactly they're doing to the universe or, or, or this world in general. Because uh, if you think about it, and I made a video about this the other day, the, um, there was a quote, I can't remember who said it, but um, he said, architecture is uh, frozen sound. Mm. And 
that, that really resonated with me and made, that's what made me look into the cathedrals. And if you think about it, the cathedrals have a lot of, you know, the main thing in a cathedral is a pipe organ. And right. they are, they, if you, I don't know if you've ever been to one or heard one, but they can get amazingly loud. And if you look at a rose window, it has a shocking similarity to a lot of cymatic patterns. Like I'm, I'm working on a post now of, of comparing all of the rose windows to these cymatic frequencies. And it appears like they, they, they mimic a cymatic frequency. And the layout along with the, the rose window and the, the relation to, to, to how electromagnetism flows around them as well, all of these forces are linked. And it, it appears that they, they had some sort of layered function other than being a place to just hear a preacher preach about some lessons in the Bible, right? Yep. It appears that they had a, had, a, had a function that was more akin to, I, I would consider it conscious development using a, a variety of techniques, whether that's th that frequency emanating into your body and restructuring DNA or unlocking something like that, or using sound frequencies to, to amplify the cymatics of the architecture and doing that, or, you know, it, it could be some like etheric harnessing of subtle energies that we don't really understand yet. But the, the, the mysteries of those for me are, are getting really, really deep into this. And I feel like in the future, those will probably be the keys to unlocking a lot of um, that ancient esoteric knowledge. Cause it's very hard to unpack that knowledge that right. it's, it's cryptic. A lot of it's imagery and it's not really easy to put those things together. But the, I think that the cathedrals and that part of that era of humanity is going to be a really crucial part to decoding this whole thing. I absolutely love it. Um, now, words matter, right? So when we say an organ, what is that really translating to? Because what do we have in our body? Organs, yeah. We have various different organs. And it's almost like... Um, the, the, the law of correspondence as above, so below is that the cathedral was built in a cymatic representation of the human body for healing or for extension and expansion of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And that the organ was a facilitator of this harmonic response with the body. Now, the question that I have out of this, because my, uh, my co-host Vince has done a show on this with, uh, um, with a few other people, what happened to all the bells? That's I'm glad you brought that up because I got <laughs> my Instagram feed. If you look at it, you'd be like, what the hell is this guy looking at? But the other day I, I kept getting these pictures of old bells, like the, mm -hmm. the huge bells and they're absolutely massive. I don't know. I don't know what happened to them, but I know they served a function that wasn't just telling people it was time to go to church. Mm -hmm. I know you don't just make a bell that big for that. You can, I mean, there's uh, in Austin here, there's a couple, you know, churches that have really big bells and, I live miles away from them. I can still hear them when they, you know, bang on him and they're not that big. These things yeah. were engineering marvels for the time, first off. And secondly, like I, I would love to hear one and see what actually happens. Cause I feel like, I feel like to disconnect those things, to disconnect the cathedrals, the actual purpose of them, they had to remove components. They did the same thing with the pyramid. It's not going to, I get a lot of comments on the pyramid. Like, why don't they do this? Or why don't they work now? Like they're, they're missing a lot of components. You can't start, a car engine without like all of the components working for it, right? That pyramid's not going to do its its desired or intended function if it doesn't have all of its components. Right now, it's just a big old pile of rocks that we're trying to decode. But you know, when it was made, it had a function. 
same with the cathedrals. No one puts that much effort into every square inch of something being perfectly geometric and all of these encoded symbols and a mysterious fun. No one does that just to be like, Hey, this is, you know, we just did this to do this. You know, there's a, there's a function behind it. So yeah, I, I'm, I've definitely been looking into these bells and um, if you look into it really deep, Russia actually had some of the biggest ones yep. and they have a lot of the best pictures too of them in their like glory days. And when they came, took them down, it's pretty ridiculous. So I, I love, I love this conversation part because firstly the bells were always on a steeple. So they were at the top of the cathedral or the temple. Mm -hmm. Now you mentioned that architecture is frozen sound. That's, this was a quote. I, I don't know if that was, um, who was it? It was, uh, 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 it was on the tip of my tongue. I know who said that, but it's on the tip of my tongue anyways. But if we think about it in the sense of frozen sound and that these things were built specifically on a various geographic point, because I look at the earth as kind of a harmonic resonator, an amplifier of sorts of subtle energies surrounding it. Therefore, the earth will have various different node points for amplification. And we know that the, the ancients built temples on these specific points. So if these cathedrals were built on those specific points and they all had bells that were resonating downward through the architecture, I wonder if there is a, a pattern that is not three-dimensionally expressed, but maybe four-dimensionally expressed, that is being resonated by the bells downward into the planet or within the architecture of the cathedral itself. I'm so glad you went there. I There's another component of this that, that not a lot of people think about when, they're, when you go to a cathedral because it's not immediately apparent like the rose window or the bell. And mm -hmm. almost all of them, I'm, I'm not going to say all of them were, but almost all of them were built over water sources aquifers right. and this is a shared similarity in almost every spiritual tradition indian temples do the same thing the pyramids are built over a massive aquifer and the mesoamerican pyramids are also built under a massive aquifer so if you think about it and i'm, I'm trying to figure out how to like correlate this into a visual thing for tiktok obviously but yeah. if you think well, about it if you want you got a video we can put a video I don't, okay. I, I literally make those like the day of, and I'm, I like, I, I've been no doing it like 10 years. So like it's, it, it's I'm fast at it, but not that fast. Um, but if you think about a speaker, like the shape of a speaker is, is a cone, right? And you have the magnet here. We'll invert that speaker. And it looks very similar to, let's say a Mesoamerican pyramid. Cause that's, they have those squares on the top, right? Yep. So if you think about it, the, the pyramid in sacred geometry, the triangle and the pyramid are the containers for energy. So, Energy, if, it, if, if the pyramid is this shape, we use it in um, uh, electrical engineering, say the, the pyramid emanates, it, it takes energy from the base and it emanates it up into a double helix. There's a Curlian photography of this. And uh, if you pass a current through it, the, the photography will show you it looks like a double, double helix spiral. And if you zoom out far enough, that spiral will go into a, a torus shape, a toroid. And so... What I'm thinking with all of these things are is, is also in electrical engineering, if you have a point, that's where, you know, that's lightning rods. Everything can focus energy on a point more than a very spread out area. Mm -hmm. So the, the pyramids and cathedrals and stuff all had spires and these very sharp points here and they're above water. And we know it is in a, a very efficient way for energy to flow. So my theory is 
it was pulling a, a more subtle energy, not necessarily electromagnetism. It was pulling that subtle energy into the earth and depositing that energy into the water. And I think that was a way of purifying the water for more harmonious life. That's why they have holy water. And they say that that water healed people because I think it pulled that, that subtle energy into the ground and, and gave you more of a balancing force whenever you were to consume it. Right. But I mean, this is all speculation, obviously, but I mean, it's, this is, there is a connection between all of them and trying to relate that is, is obviously pretty difficult. So, you know, going on the water thing, I mean, I, I just go back to Dr. Emoto, his work mm -hmm. and, uh, um, a few other people in the sense of water shape memory, all of that. But also there's some research out there specifically about water, about how there's a naturally derived source of water on the planet that comes from the tops of the mountains and it flows down from the mountains into the aquifers. And it's the, uh, the most natural state that water can be in. And if we look at water as uh, a molecular structure, we have various different degrees of angles from 104 degrees to 118 degrees of which the hydrogen molecule or hydrogen atom can be placed on the oxygen atom in yeah. relation to the two hydrogens and then go into molecular shape with another molecule. And that there is this, um, this golden mean or Fibonacci sequence that is produced with, I think it's 114 degrees is this kind of natural state to where water naturally resets from the polar ice caps or from the highest parts of the mountains and goes into the aquifers at that to where its memory is reset. And I'm wondering if the sacred water theory, that's right. Wondering if it's something of that nature where they're actually pulling that energy from the water upward that's that's another thing that you when you say uh, Emoto's work and um, I, I made a video it did pretty well on TikTok about um, uh, this girl Veda Austin she does she proved water memory pretty much and um, she has a technique for freezing water where you can just show you literally put a petri dish on top of water and she has a it, you almost flash freeze it um, but it, it can it can show you the image mm -hmm. um, like a little it's not very high def but you can look at it and be like yo that's you know pretty creepy but. Uh, Water does actually have um, memory. The guy that invented the cymoscope or the water one where you see all the cool patterns, yeah. he, um, his initial research into it, um, he, played, he played a frequency um, and he recognized the patterns and he played one frequency and kept playing the frequency. So he'd play it and he'd let the water settle and he'd play it again and let the water settle. And every time he played the frequency, the water would, would reset to that shape quicker and quicker. And there's an order um, of speed. It has water has its memory. Like if you do it continually, it will remember that frequency shape. And uh, so I think that what you're talking about here is what's in, I guess, more the spiritual sense is called structured water or restructuring the water. Mm -hmm. And that that would mean if we pass that frequency through the water, that water kind of the frequency realigns those molecules within that uh degree of the you know hydrogen and oxygen atoms getting together and if we can transmit information with binary ones and zeros that's a lot of wiggle room to hold information so if you think about it that way then then yeah that makes a lot of sense that if you restructure that water it's going to interact with you way differently you know you well, can tell tap water versus filtered water let alone you know a water that's molecularly structured throughout the entire container well, and we're, we're 72 to 82% water. Yeah. 
you know, I, I remember uh, I was in uh, I was in college and, and the, the teacher I was in a biology class and the teacher was talking how we are carbon based life form. And I'm like, no, we're not. <laughs> no, we're like, oh, well, yeah, we are. Said, no, we're, we're water based life forms. Yeah. And so we're a higher level of molecular structure. We are water based. And she was like, oh, my God, that's such like a novel idea. Like, you're right. We're, we're water based because like, carbon isn't life, but water. Yeah. Is this fundamental to life? Uh, Luc Montagnier, the, the Nobel laureate, Dr. Luc Montagnier, who just passed away last year, um, who was very uh, outspoken about the vaccine and all that stuff. Uh, but uh, he's the one that actually did a, uh, the research, extended research on Dr. Emoto's work in 2014 in a documentary and validated it in a scientific setting. And this is a Nobel laureate going out yeah. there and validating Dr. Emoto's work on structured water. And that's where you get the, uh, the various degrees of angles, 104 degrees, 118 degrees to where 114 was that specific, or maybe it was 111. Cause I know that's a, a special number in the sense of the, uh, the, the holy frequency. Um, that, sorry to interrupt, but that, that yeah, ang angle of those molecules also influences the crystal lattice structure when it freezes. Right. So that's going to give you your infinite amount of variations in, in water freezing. So if you think about it that way too, like not only is that an, a vast amount of data that it can store, if you're thinking about it in terms of like a computer or binary, that is a vast amount of, of variety that you can have in the way that water interacts with everything around it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So. Yeah, uh, man, I, I love this. So, all right. I don't want to shift gears too much because I'm enjoying this conversation too much. But let me ask you this is... Do you think there was an ancient culture or more recent culture on this planet, maybe that has been eliminated from history that had this technology? Ooh. So I, I tried to organize this in a way that wasn't as conspiracy at, that would like put me in, in the, the bucket of just wild, too wild conspiracy, you know? Because I do think that there is a obviously there's a, a subculture below. That's the occult. That was that was driven far underground at the time of Egypt's destruction, right? Mm -hmm. So we've been trying to revive that for you know thousands of years now. But in terms of people that could use something like this, I, I absolutely do. But I think that we had a period where that that knowledge the flame was almost extinguished it was it was it was this close to becoming lost on this planet forever mm -hmm. and i think that there was a if you look at history in terms of of the way academia does it they do different cultures from you know like egypt to ancient china to you know victorians to modern like that's very oversimplified but they look at it like a speedometer kind of like that but i when i looked at it it looked to me like there was a very clear distinction of the worlds and the the ancient world when you look at monuments you can definitely tell that they're ancient you know like if you go to rome if you go to greece if you go to egypt you can tell these things are very old they have their style they have their way of teaching and then you go to somewhere like um europe or somewhere that has a lot of you know victorian architecture cathedrals and stuff like that that seems like an evolution of the, uh, you know, the ancient way of doing things, a more efficient, refined, developed version of that. So I would say that would be like a phase two in, in human development. And at the end of that phase, which I'm, I'm again, this is pure speculation, but right. it seems like 
the world wars had a lot to do with that, the destruction of this. And, you know, under if the entire globe is fighting, you can carry out a lot of horrific things and erase a lot of history under the guise of we had to kill the bad guys. So I, I think that was when it almost got completely destroyed. And a lot of the connections that we would have had uh, got kind of erased because carpet bombings and all this stuff where where a lot of history just got that these links that could have been pieced together got removed from the puzzle. And now we're looking at this puzzle and it's like, you know, it's a very low resolution version of it just because the pieces are gone now. So I think that culture was us. I don't think it was a separate culture in humanity. I think it was a separate level of consciousness um, that was inhabited by certain um, individuals on the planet. And it got, more kind of snuffed out by the negative version of that the the that that battle if you think about it in terms of good and evil i think the evil side kind of won there for a while and we're just now about to hopefully pull out of that oh i i agree um you know interesting things there you, you were talking about early 20th century world war one um Pre-World War One, the majority of all European government offices had taken over all old architecture. So they had gone into old cathedrals, old buildings, and utilized them for their post offices and for their government buildings, of which the majority of those were destroyed in carpet bombings during World War One. Um, an interesting mathematical fact for all the listeners out there, at night, in the year 1900, it estimated the global population was at 1 billion people. From 1900 to 1963, approximately 500 million people on this planet perished due to World War I, World War II, the Spanish flu, and the rise of communism and socialism in the world. With those numbers at hand and knowing the birth rate of human beings, you would need to have every family at the beginning of 1900, every single family have eight children of them, eight children, and the next generation have eight children in order to have 8.5 billion people today, which that means that there's a problem in the mathematical context context of how we have a population of 8.5 billion people today and we had that many people lost in the 20th century and i like to talk about the french catacombs because the math there doesn't add up either in the sense that there's 6.1 million people in just the first um three to six square miles of the french catacombs mm -hmm. and they say that that's over a 10-year period during the black plague but unfortunately the whole population of all of europe was 3.1 million during that time and only about 200,000 in france and so where are you getting six million people even over a 10-year period it's inconceivable so it looks like there was something on this planet that potentially uh, was a thriving civilization that might even been buried or covered up in, in really just recently and this was one of the reasons why the Nazis went out there on their occult journeys and tried to recover as many artifacts as they possibly could. Um, but it, it, it's, it's crazy because if it is true, they did such a good job covering up that we forgot and we don't know where to look. And we do find remnants and artifacts of it, but we date them much, much older because we cannot logically understand that it potentially was only from 100 a, a years ago. I think you, your population problem here is is a really, really big crux in the entire theory or narrative that academia is pushing because we have population problems in almost every story that they tell. There's it, Go back all the way to the, the end of the Ice Age. Mm -hmm. they, in North America, they say that, that the natives here hunted all of the megafauna here 
which if you look at the population here, that, that would mean they were just killing things just to kill things. And if you know anything about any, I'm from Kansas. There's a lot of uh, native Americans there. And uh, I worked all through Oklahoma, Texas, you know, I've, I've been in these communities. I, I've, I've talked to these guys and, and they, what they, when you meet them, they, they actually are exactly how they're portrayed. Like they use everything. It's, it's like all a very, you know, we don't take more than we need. So why, why on earth are they hunting all these, you know, megafauna? Why, why are they just killing to kill? That's just one. Go back to Egypt. Calculate the population of, of the Egyptian empire, which was, which was arguably the greatest empire of the time. And just do the math on one of the pyramids. It doesn't even have to be the Great Pyramid. On how mm-hmm. long it would take that population working around the clock 24 hours to build that that thing, let alone plan it. It's a generational project, right? It's, yeah. It would have to be across like generations of your sons and your grandsons. The population just does not support that either. And then if you take it from Egypt on up to almost every culture that has been extinguished or even the, the uh, Mesoamericans, that, that was, from what I can tell and what we're discovering now with LIDAR, their empire was just Massive. as big, if not more, if not larger than Egypt's in seemingly un- disconnected cultures, which we know now that that's, that's absolutely false. They were, they were communicating, they were trading, but that empire alone, like the, the amount of artifacts they left and monuments that they left that are in inaccessible parts of the jungle the the network the the infrastructure that they built for the population that we're told they had it there's we there's no way we could do that with our machines right now in the time Mm -hmm. span that we are told they did that in the the math when you look at it that that's why it's so important to have engineers and mathematicians looking at history now because when you when you just think about it a little bit you're like that there's no way i can't can't do that Well, it, it would have to be a, a, a multi-millennial civilization in order to have something that expansive, especially in Mesoamerica. When you start talking about the Amazon rainforest and what they're doing is they're utilizing a, a LIDAR to go out there and map the Amazon floor. And they're discovering the foundation. They're discovering pyramids, underground temples of a vast hundreds of mile long city um, that exists under there. Yeah, it's huge. Absolutely massive. And they say that this exists when Cortez went there. And that's the cities that they came upon, the cities of gold that were existent there. And they brought, apparently brought smallpox, another bioweapon, and wiped out apparently millions, if probably billions, of, yeah. of human beings off the planet from that one singular uh, event. Uh, and then they came into North America and they went up uh, El Camino Real, the King's Road. Yep. And they went all the way up to Canada and they visited all the civilizations and populations there. I remember uh, <clears throat> there, there was photographs of early San Francisco oh, uh, before yeah. the miners got in there. Oh, and man. what you yeah. saw in there was these cathedrals, just like we're talking about right now. And yep. it was like there was a town or a city there before we got there. And we tore all that down and built up our own stuff because the people there were dead. Well, there was conveniently a lot of fires and earthquakes and stuff as well that, you know, leveled a bunch of cities. But but the the it's funny you said like the the cities of gold and cortez and all that stuff yep. it, it, every single one of these and and you can link this to like modern day real life they just found in india the i think it was the largest store of gold um anywhere like it, there's there's I, I can't remember what number it was but some billions of dollars worth yep. of gold locked in a temple 
and uh, the the people are not they don't want the government to open it up. The government's trying to get in there. You know, it's it's a kind of a big battle. But every one of those cultures was very focused on gold. Like the even the the pyramids, the cap was supposedly gold. Everything in any Egyptian artifact was just drenched in gold. Let alone the Mayans, that civilization. So all of them were linked with with the you know gold as well, which is ironic that you know it's the most hoarded and stockpiled thing in the world right now. Mm-hmm. But um, and it's it's magnificent uses in electromagnetism. So there's a lot of very curious things going on there. But the uh, yeah that that link to those and the uh, you know the theft the theft that went on with that is very very uh, it's what a huge rabbit hole. I think that's another really good point for people to get into this is to look, just look at the amount of stuff that was stolen and look at what was stolen. Like right. not necessarily, not necessarily what the artifacts were, just look at it from an objective point of view. And it's uh, the pieces start to kind of assemble themselves a little bit. And then you can just go down those rabbits all day. Absolutely. Um, kind of shift gears a little bit, but it, well, sticking with civilizations is are are you more of a proponent of uh, ancient alien theory or pre diluvian high advanced human civilization theory, kind of the Atlantean theory, or or what are your thoughts on that on on where we came from? I I would say more of the Atlantean theory, but that still is like kind of a chicken and egg thing. They had to come from somewhere, so like. I think it was more of a seed, a seed type thing. I, I'm really into like the neuroscience and the brain part of all mm-hmm. of the, you know, the ancient cultures. If you look deep enough, there's a lot of esoteric anatomy in their symbology, and um, it it does appear that that some sort of creature that evolved maybe naturally on Earth was modified by a higher intelligence to make us. There's a lot of clues to that. I mean, it's that's the whole point of evolution and spirituality they're trying to prove they're that's the battle that's the eternal battle so um but i would say that from our memory alone i'd say we're more on the atlantean side like the or lemuria whatever those you know all of the lost civilizations side note on that uh, when we were talking about how big those empires were if you look at the sea levels in the ice age they were 200 miles farther out so even the stuff that we're seeing now we're not seeing all of the 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 our major cities are on the coastlines are are the biggest centers of populations are along the coast. And if the coasts were different back then, we're definitely looking in the wrong places for their biggest things. So uh, just a side tangent, but I I do think that, uh, that everything is more of a, a, that was seeded from somewhere else. And that could be not necessarily aliens that are flying in spaceships. It could have been a, I would say like a higher dimensional intelligence maybe that was able to manifest in this reality and and manifest through the elements and the resources that we have on this planet. That intelligence was able to inhabit something like a human or, uh, you know, more intelligent form of life. And that's a, that's a pretty good theory too, because uh, I I tend to agree with, with that. I'm not a big proponent of the ancient alien theory. Um, And the reason why I really don't kind of align with the ancient alien theory, because it really discredits who we are. It it really takes away from humanity. It it puts us in the sense of created by another material being. And uh, a lot of the ancient alien theory derived from a man by the name of Zachariah Stitchin. Yep. And uh, Zachariah Stitchin's work has been shown to be highly flawed in very many degrees. And then Eric Von Donegan was another one. 
Um, and so, you know, looking at the people who have came out, relooked at uh, Donegan's work as well as Stitchens and said, no, this just really isn't true. Yeah. It, then it begins to make a lot of sense. Although I do believe that there was a civilization uh, on this planet and there is, um, I'm forgetting who it was. I watched the other day. I, I watched this podcast episode. I don't watch very many podcasts, uh, but it was about ancient giant civilizations Yes. And how you can translate these giant civilizations into uh, the the um, a lot of the biblical talk, a lot of the ancient cultures that were highly technologically advanced, even potentially the Mesoamericans, the Egyptians, so forth, that these potentially were even giant cultures who thrived on this planet. We came from somewhere else and killed them yep. um, and destroyed them. Yeah. I, I, th I think there's a lot of... Uh clues in the I, I mean even looking at the um the hieroglyphs in uh egypt the, you see the size difference and if you look at some of the some of the monuments there are so big you, you can't really comprehend it you see pictures of it all the time you know but until someone stands next to it you see how big they actually are and it's not a lot of people explain it away as like they were deifying and saying that they were larger than you know like they were rulers so they had to make them larger but they're often portrayed with people right next to them and, and the people are doing normal human tasks and these larger beings are, are doing, they're not doing the same thing humans are. So I, I, I think it's an enigma. If you go back to um, like the early 1900s too, in the New York times, they've scrubbed a lot of articles, but there's, I have a whole folder of these things. Um, they've, they've taken them off of their archives, but they had um, physical copies of when people would find bones of very, large humans over i think the they would write about it if it was over seven feet and some of them were up to like 13 feet tall and this was just in like the americas mostly and uh i i, I want to say i have like 33 of these articles and they're all over the place and they say the names of the people who discovered it and all this stuff and um and ironically the you know smithsonian comes in grabs all the bones and doesn't ever put them on display <laughs> so <laughs> So it, it, it's hard to argue that point when there's there's nothing to look at, you know, but yeah, so Robert Zephyr did um a great one. So his YouTube channel uh there's a few different ones. Ancient Giants Rituals of the Elites of Jekyll Island. Um he has White Giants of the New World, uh Robert Zephyr on YouTube. I mean just fascinating what he does with this because he goes into a lot of the archaeological evidence. He's an anthropologist, yeah. uh, classically trained anthropologist who goes into a lot of this. And then I've had uh, Michael Cremo on many times who's came about and talked about forbidden archaeology and the things that they found. Uh, but I think one of the, the interesting theories out there, and this is kind of one that I've derived myself, is that what if – and this kind of goes into the, the, the modern dilemma that we have on the planet right now of sustainable development and reducing carbon footprint and all this stuff, which is nothing more than a guise to, we believe, to tax the shit out of us. But I said, what if the planet's actually being terraformed? Because what it sounds like is that they're trying to reduce the carbon dioxide, which would decrease the amount of oxygen available within the environment, which would actually dumb us down because oxygen is directly related to uh, brain processing and brain functionality to where you put a human being into an environment with 30% oxygen, they're going to thrive. And it's actually evidence showing that in pre-Diluvian times, the oxygen concentration in the atmosphere wow. is about 28 to 30%, which means that we would be 
more uh, thorough in our processing as well is we most likely would be bigger. We'd most likely be yep. a little bit larger beings, especially the fauna on this planet would be much, yep. much bigger. And we have the petrified wood monuments, Devil's Tower, the trees yep. that look like large, incredibly large trees and so forth. And so the question is, is was that really us and some transitional phase happened on the planet, reduced the oxygen content, brought it back into the oceans, and then we evolved back or devolved back to this size to sustain our life. And that's kind of the point of evolution 200,000 years ago that this potentially happened. I don't know. It's just a theory, but it starts to make a lot of sense. It seemed, it seems to be the most logical explanation for that. Like if we're using Occam's razor here, that's like a, an immediate first jumping off point, but there's an interesting correlation that not a lot of people know about mm -hmm. uh, the end of um, actually the beginning of the Renaissance. If you line up the time periods and measure the oxygen, the oxygen um, increased by a significant amount at the start of the Renaissance. So mm -hmm. I, I would say that, yeah, that probably helped a little bit more than we would like to admit in terms of like cognitive processing. Um, I'm, I'm sure there was individuals that could, could operate under low oxygen conditions and, and, you know, still be cognitively fine. But um, in terms of like the vast majority of people, I do think that um, even though, you know, there's, there's a lot of negatives to fossil fuels, there are a lot of positives to fossil fuels. And I think that might actually be, we might actually be seeing an increase of, I don't, I want to say like open-mindedness or, or free thought because there is an, a more abundance of, you know, CO2 and the ability of that to, for plants to use that. Um, but at the same time, we're kind of taking all the plants off the planet. So there's more CO2, but less plants. So that's kind of like fighting itself. Counter, counter a, lot, a lot of theories on that, but. <laughs> well, yeah, well, and we've actually, we covered the topic here a few different times is that, um, Atmospheric CO2 is actually what presents the, the aspect of warming on the planet. You have surface level CO2, but this is primarily used by the, uh, the, the fauna and so forth. But the measurement stations that they use, and we've looked at this data, there's about 1,600 measurement statement, uh, stations around the world, and they are very diversified. So you'll have some in the Amazon, some in the middle of a field, some in cities, and then you'll yeah. have some at universities. And what they do is they take test beds of these measurement datas. But if you look at the data, it's always skewed towards the high end. So they'll take 10 cities and two forests and say, oh my goodness, we have an increase over here. Well, of course you do. You're in a city, you're in a concentrated yeah. area. That's what you're going to have. Yeah. Um, but either way, we should take care of the planet. Either way, we Absolutely, should yeah. not pollute the fucking atmosphere. I mean, no, come on, no. it's just stupid. But on the other side is that there's a technology available on this planet that we're all beginning to realize and understand. And I call this conscious technology. And that we shouldn't have a need for fossil fuels or solar for that matter, no. is that there is a abundance of infinite energy available Armor, yeah. at our fingertips. If we would just get our shit together and start working together and understand more of the, the sacred lessons and teachings from our ancestors than this level of arrogance that modern science has in the sense of their materialistic position that the spirit doesn't exist and we live in a very mechanistic universe that's doomed to end in a big crunch. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't think the way that the... Uh... That's one of the things that really turned me away from engineering too is the compartmentalization of all of the disciplines. Like I, I really did like electrical engineering, but I also I loved chemistry. I loved all. Uh, mm -hmm. I loved art. I loved music. I I wanted to do all of them, but like you have to hyper focus on one thing and just you have this really narrow window of reality. 
And then people start to live that. And then they, they have that one perspective, that narrow perspective of reality. So that the, my, my goal with the, the TikTok was to, and TikTok skews younger. I, I, I'm trying to, to relate everything to everything else right. and say that if you want to, you know, if, if you want to be an engineering DJ, you can do that. Like, <laughs> like there's no limit to the things that you can do because they're all intricately linked. And that's another thing that, that I'm sure you wanted to talk about was the vibration aspect of it. The thing that links every single thing that we've talked about from consciousness to ancient history is vibration through that. Mm. And I think the, uh, a beautiful thing that, that science is doing is they snuck quantum theory in the back door. They could not explain a lot of, uh, you know, uh, Einstein called it spooky action at a distance. They couldn't explain a lot of things. So they had to come up with something, but they, but they didn't want to like seed any of their advancements to religion. They didn't want to give them any credit for that because science for a good reason was kind of invented to combat religion. They were burning people at the stakes because they thought people were, you know, possessed by demons. So scientists came along to kind of prove some natural phenomenon weren't, you know, possessions and stuff like that, which it had its function, but then science got kind of, you know, king of the hill and is, is, I mean, it's asserting a lot of dominance in terms of technology and making life easier, but uh, it has holes in it and it had holes in it until quantum theory and, and um, you know, simulation theory, holographic reality came out. Like all of those concepts are very ancient concepts, but they're just rebranded to fit with, within the scientific theory and, and be, have a name to be quantitatively measured. You can't, you know, you can't measure consciousness. So we have to call that, you know, something in the scientific realm that we can. Yeah. Resonant know, microtubule tubules. Exactly. Oh like, yeah. It's resonant microtubules. That's all it is. And like, yeah, like space on, time, dude. space time is the ether. Like there's, if you look at the definitions between them, like they're, they're exactly the same. They're, they're calling it something different so that they can say they did it and it's fine. Like, if you want to take sides, you can take sides, but we're all talking about the same thing. And then that's another thing I wanted to do with my, my channel is like, I, I don't want to pick sides and I hope everybody else doesn't pick sides. We're all going to the same thing. We're all, we're all trying to figure this thing out. No one knows because a lot of dumb stuff happened and we're put in this position. We're all trying to figure it out, but I'll tell you what, taking sides and, and making arguments and calling people, you know, ignorant for not thinking exactly the way that you do is definitely not the way to progress that. Well, and modern day science is consensus based, not evidence based. Yeah. And I think that that is a huge problem that really started around the time of Einstein when ether theory was really shot out after the Michelson Morley experiment. Um, you know, in, in 1889, when J.J. Thompson discovered the electron. Um, you know, he came out and discussed the mathematical component of the electron that this is not a particle. This is a field of potentiality, that yeah. this is a resonant field that exists around the the uh, the nucleus of the atom. And then Max Planck came in in the early 1900s looking for this, discovered black body radiation. This is where we discover 10 to the negative 35 meters, the, the Planck's length, Planck's time, Planck's second, all this stuff. Uh, and then Einstein comes in and you know, takes the results from Michelson and Morley's experiment and says, oh, well, there's no ether, then what is it? And how can I redefine uh, Newtonian physics? And he comes up with relativity in general, special relativity and relativity, which, I mean, when you start looking at it on a mathematical component, um, Einstein was 
fundamentally flawed in how his geometry fits together. Yeah. You have your Euclidean geometry and your Bukowskian ge geometry, which doesn't work together in the same dimensionality. And they have to basically smash numbers to get uh, together to make it work. But if you take that out of context and you put in a lot of the ether mathematics with like the, uh, uh, Maxwell equations and utilize uh, basically electromagnetic wave theory as a proponent for that, for the transition, not the transit, the translation of the geometry, it starts to make a lot more sense. And they actually just proved this last year with the Nobel prize, which was um, talking about quantum entanglement and how they actually discovered that this point of quantum entanglement actually is derived from a point of non-locality, that the only thing that is actually in existence is this, point of ob observational reference in the universe and everything else exists around it in a state of non-locality -loc or non-definition. And really that's what Maxwell was stating. That's what Einstein wanted to say, but really didn't know how that's what Tesla yeah. was stating. It's, it's funny that you said that I, I literally just posted a TikTok about that exact thing of, of oh, yeah? how, yeah, of how, <clears throat> sorry, I got sick of that festival. I just posted a thing and, and it's um, like how to make sense of the, the, the quantum and string theory and all this stuff, because um, you're right on, on all of that. They're all, they're all, they were trying to put this, this puzzle together and there was one thing that they were missing out of all of it. And in my opinion, if uh, we call that consciousness. So yep. in the video, I say that that is the internet of the universe. Consciousness links all things and it, you know, that's how, Energy is processed and flows and all of this stuff. But the quantum theory, if you think about string theory and, and you assume that the Big Bang is correct, everything was at one point, right? And we have this big expansion of everything. But we, we prove string theory is correct. We can, we can you know, tickle this atom over here and this atom laughs. Like the, the, we prove that that's correct. But they all link somewhere. And that link, if you're thinking in terms of just how, how – all of these puzzles pieces fit together, that link would be a singularity from the big bang. So if you connect that thread to, to whatever you're processing right now, this computer screen or you or, or anything, it's relaying data back to the source. It's a, it's a connection. It's a, feedback. It's a biofeedback. Yeah. Yeah. It's a biofeedback. It, it's a connection, but over such a vast scale and it's going so fast that this whole thing seems like it's, it's real. This desk seems real, but it's not real. Th those, you know, those atoms are relaying back to the singularity that their position, my position, observing them, like all of this, it makes sense when you think about it. But the, the, the thing that science won't touch is the conscious aspect of it is that they, they can't prove, you know, where it comes from, what happens when we die, all of this stuff. But it's, it is the, if you don't have consciousness, you're a corpse. You cannot move your body without something saying my, my consciousness is telling me to move my finger. You know, it's not going to move on its own. If my consciousness isn't here, I'm going to decompose and I'm going to die. So that, that energy is, I kind of relate that to what you were talking about earlier is that infinite source of energy that we are not tapping into with modern materialistic science. They're not looking at that when that is a potential source of unlimited power. But I also, on the, on the other hand of that, I also think it was uh, in humanity's best interest to keep that kind of hidden for a while. Because can you imagine not only nuclear bombs, but we can there's, – there's a way to harness a lot more power than a nuke. And if bad people have that, 
I mean, Oppenheimer thought he was going to light the entire atmosphere on fire. He thought he was going to kill yeah. all of the life on Earth. It didn't know if it was true or not. They just tested it out, and thank God it wasn't. But, like, so I, I think we're, we're approaching a point where humanity might be ready for it, but I don't know if it's necessarily uh, – I think a lot of that old energy, those old uh, ways of thinking and stuff, need to be not here anymore for us to progress. 100% agree. And, and uh, we, we can talk about cycles of time and, and evolution of mind and consciousness in a second. I wanted to touch on a few of the things that you were saying there, because uh, I, I, I agree with you. You're absolutely right. Although I, I'm not a proponent of the Big Bang. And I'm not a proponent of the Big Bang because I can't logically um, formulate it in my mind that if something's expanding one hundredth millionth of a second uh, to fifty percent of its current size, that's illogical. They they don't know what happened before. They don't know what state and position it was in. All the laws of the universe didn't exist prior to this, and that if it did expand, that means it has a formulation of momentum. If it has a formulation of a momentum, and everything is moving away from each other all uniformly, then there is no point of collision to where gravity can actually take hold and forces can come about. I look at it more in the sense of kind of uh, uh, vibrational theory or kind of what the ancients talk about in the sense of the yin-yang, the mixing of the waters, mm -hmm. is that we have two what I would call optimized states of systems, two systems that are at points of optimizations. Think again at destructive interference. There's nothing there, but there is something being projected into it. You have two frequencies. You have a transmitter and a receiver. It's all happening, but they are at a sum zero state. Those two things come in connect with another thing they combined and they begin exchanging energy performing a producing an emergent phenomena so system a and system b come together they produce an emergent effect this is where you get the holy trinity this is where you get the yin yang the mixing of the waters that new emergent effect is uh, a median of the energy state but it's more structured it's more organized it's more intelligence you repeat that process billions upon billions of times and you get what we have here today structure organized energy that is communicating in relationship with each other producing new new emergent forms of data and information, which is communication, relationships, love, children, creations, reality. So I look at it more in, in that context. And that is really just a manifestation of awareness itself. It's just creation itself. And uh, you have this fundamental field and all the laws get to stay. So yeah. that would at least be my perspective in that. Um, but you're absolutely right, is that there's the fundamental field of awareness, of consciousness in the universe. And this is what is left out by modern science. And even Max Planck said, you know, we, we must uh, come to the realization that there is a force behind this matter. And that mat that force is the matrix of, of all matter. That's mine. That's yeah. God. And yeah. I think that I, I do a lot of logical um, deduction. So I do what I call the, uh, uh, the ultimate paradox. So when I talk to people about God, I ask them the ultimate paradox. And I say, what is the definition? And I'll ask you, what is the definition of nothing? No thing. <laughs> no things. <laughs> well, well, you can't define it, right? Yeah, because the yeah. moment you define it, it becomes it something. Thing. Yeah, it is a yeah. thing. So you can't, right. you can't define no thing. So therefore, no thing, nothing has never existed. Yeah. And the fa mere fact that nothing has never existed means that everything has always existed. It has existed. Which let means me, that it's infinite you, uh, in that context. Let me see what you think on my my take on this. So yeah, I, I also am not a uh, proponent of the Big Bang. I, I think that the Big Bang is correct in a very small piece of the whole. 
So when you look at the Big Bang, it's always like a funnel. You know, they show the singularity and it's exploding out, yeah. right? But um, where we are, at, where we are supposedly at in that funnel, would mean that um, you know we can't see past the edge of the universe. Or like, there's nothing over that edge, right? But think of this in terms of of, uh, of the Earth. Like, you can't you can't see around the Earth, right? You can't you can't your vision can't go that way, right? So if you look at all the symbology of, of the universe from from ancient cultures and stuff too, it's always typically been represented with the infinity symbol, right? Mm-hmm. Well, if we take that infinity symbol like this and we rotate it around, it becomes the Taurus. And if you know, uh, you're an engineer as well, the the toroid is the most efficient way for energy to flow. It's it's how uh, CERN does it. It's how fusion reactors work. It's how... It's what our galaxy we, is. It's how what our galaxy is. It's the... It's what an uh, atom is. Contains, yeah, the hydrogen waveform. If you look at it and you put a Taurus over all of those shapes, it fits perfectly in there. So in my opinion, the, the universe would be shaped as, as a torus. And that big bang, that singularity is, if we think of it as the universe experiencing itself, if you're a fragmented piece of that singularity experiencing you as a whole, that would explain why there has never been no thing. You were just experiencing yourself constantly. But at some point along that path, you were going to acquire all of the knowledge in all of the universe it, it, with enough time an infinite amount of time, you will acquire everything there is to know about the universe, right? At that point is when I think you you return back on the bottom of that, go into the singularity, and much like the water gets restructured, clearing its memory, you go through that same process and come back out the end. That would explain the cycles of time that we see from the Aztecs, from the um, all of the ancient calendars mm-hmm. and, um, and and the ages as well. It's, it's if you're going if you're going if we're going to impose our concept of time on that then we can segment that out exactly as they did. Maybe we'll use our language, but, but there's a reason why all of those charts line up. If you take all of those charts, even the ones, the astrology and, and all of that and line it up, they, they all have specific things that, you know, maybe they're not exact, but they, they, they are very similar in the way that they look at things like that. So uh, right. that's my kind of unified theory of it with the, with the entire flow being linked with this, you know, um, internet of consciousness going back to the singularity, giving it a perspective on itself. Well, I mean, and, and a sphere is one of the fundamental shapes within this universe. So, I mean, you take that theory that I was talking about as well is it's two spheres coming together and flowing yeah. of energy between them, which is a toroid. So it's really similar to what you're saying there. Um, and it's really, we start looking at everything in the world. You look at a tree, a tree blossoms out like this, but then it also blooms out underneath in the root structure, which is toroidal in its shape. But then also in the same context, we look at the patterns that are repeated in nature is that a tree goes out there and it, puts leaves and branches out there, which absorb the life force from the environment around it. But then when fall starts coming in and the cycles begin changing, it pulls that life force out of those leaves and back into the tree in preservation for the winter so that in the spring that it can blossom again. The thing is, is the leaves always fall down to the ground, get reabsorbed into the grounds by the roots and come part of that tree once again. And that tree during that winter time grows just a little bit taller and gains a little bit more knowledge out of its environment. And then in the spring, those leaves pop back into existence and that's nothing more than the body that we have and the consciousness that comes into us the consciousness is the tree and the bodies are simply the leaf and the process of reincarnation is that a never-ending cycle of birth and rebirth throughout the winter time and going through the cycles that you're talking about 
is that one of the things that I, I realized studying occultism is they're talking about these ancient cycles. And we have the 26,500 processional cycle. Now, what's interesting about that, and I think this would be cool for you to look into as well, and I don't, maybe you have, is that we go around the Orion arm of the galaxy. We don't go through a straight circular orbit around the galaxy. We actually bob up and down between the arm of the galaxy. Now, the one thing about gravitational force is it tends to concentrate towards the center of a structured, uh, a structured arm, galactic arm in the galactic center, which is Sagittarius A and B. So this means that we'd have discretion disc and we'd have more gravitational force in the center line of our galaxy than we're going to have in the outskirts, which means yeah. that our sun as it spirals up and down through this galactic arm is going to go through from a very, very low point, negative polarization, go through a center mass, which is going to be incredibly dense. And then it's going to a positive high point, which Mm -hmm. if people watch the sun every day and they go out to a window and they put a dot at noon every day where the sun is, it's going to form an analemma, which is this figure eight shape. This figure eight shape actually is two equinoxes and two solstices. And it represents the, um, the perihelion and the aheleion of the sun distance from the, uh, from uh, the earth's distance from the sun. But what this shows us is the changing of the seasons. And so what I think our ancestors were trying to tell us as well is that not only are there seasons on the earth, but there's seasons within the galaxy that we go through summers, we go through winters and springs and falls. And that if we look at these in the transition of consciousness, I think you would agree that evolution has to be built into the universe. Evolution of consciousness has to be built into the fundamental framework of the universe. And when would be a proper time to do that? Well, if we're transiting, our solar system is moving up and then it comes down through an incredibly dense point in the galaxy and it goes down to this negative polarized zone. It turns around, this is winter and starts coming back up again. Well, what do we got? We got solar cycles. We got solar maximum, solar minimums. We have 11-year solar cycles, 122-year solar uh, super cycles. We have El Nino and El Nino cycles here on the planet that correlate directly with that. And in the solar minimum, we have cosmic bombardment that comes in from the galactic center that bombards our planet, produces more cloud cover and less vegetation. And then the solar maximum, less cloud cover, more sun, more fauna, and growth and rebirth. And so we see this relationship between the sun's um, orbit around the galaxy and the various different densities of bombardment. And so I want to get your comments on that. And then I'll tell you another part. It's actually pretty cool about that. Go ahead. Well, you, uh, that I, I'm fully, uh, I agree with you on like 99% of what you said there. And I want to tie it to something too, is another thing like the gold within, within all those ancient cultures, all of those ancient cultures were very, very skilled in astronomy mm-hmm. and, academia explains this as you know they were doing it for crops and they were doing it for you know festivals and celebrations and stuff but um if you look a little deeper there's there's a reason for tracking the seasons yes but why would they be tracking the procession of the equinox that is something that does not make a lot of sense because over that time span there's no human that's going to survive that. You know, it, there's, it's, what was it? 26,000 years, I think is a full. Yeah. It's it, 72 years. 72 years is one degree of the processional cycle. Yeah. So that's not going to affect your corn yield. You know, there's no reason why those, those guys are tracking. The unless, it does. unless it does. Yeah. But I mean that, but that could be, there could be subtle energies that they knew. Like maybe we are transitioning to a point in the galaxy where there's a different type of energy that needs to be harvested or, or a way of working with it 
that if they know about it, it can develop consciousness. And in my opinion, it's it, all of these uh, proto cultures and, and like the, the more advanced cultures, their main goal, it looked, it appeared that they were just trying to develop a greater intelligence on the planet. Like our, we don't do we don't do what they did today. All of their look at Egypt and look at look at India. Their their teachings are carved into granite, the hardest stone that is on this planet, so that future generations can learn the intelligence that that they have passed down. The, the, go to any modern church, go to any modern temple that we build today. There's nothing there but but TV screens and and yeah. you know just chairs. So uh, I think their focus was on those cycles, those those longer cycles. And if you go back even farther than like the uh, um, Sumerian kings list, Egyptian uh, Book of the Dead, uh, they go over how long their lifespans were. The old 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 rulers of of the uh, you know the the lands there. And it was in the thousands of years, some 12 to 30,000 years, some of these guys were ruling. And at that long of a time span, then the procession of the equinox starts to matter a lot more because then you have your son is going to rule in the next procession. Mm -hmm. And that's going to come with a whole bunch of new influences on consciousness and the energy of the planet and all of these subtle influences that we don't necessarily focus on today because we are very short-sighted in the way of thinking about the things that we can't necessarily measure with an instrument like a tool that science would use. Absolutely. And um, to bring credence to this, all this theory that we're talking about here um, in 2014, Dr. Martin blank of Columbia university was testing 4g and 5g radiation and its effects on DNA to see if it actually did damage to DNA. Mm -hmm. Um, he made some profound discoveries that probably should have got him the Nobel Prize. Uh, he found out, number one, that DNA is an electromagnetic transducer. It sends and receives signals. As yeah. well, that is DNA is a fractal antenna. Yes. Which is quite interesting in itself. Now, he found out that DNA is incredibly susceptible to 4G and 5G radiation signals, although the signals that we have are very ambient in the sense that they don't have a profound effect because they're not yeah. that high of power. They're really much at ground level, you know, 30, yeah. 40 decibel max when they're hitting your phone. Yeah. But he did find that long-term exposure does have DNA damage. And the reason is, is because the frequency um, attenuation of your DNA uh is influenced heavily by the cosmic microwave background radiation, the CMBR. And there's another independent study done in 2013, 2014 that actually proposed that human evolution, DNA evolution, in the sense of the epigenetic sense, was derived by the bombardment of the cosmic microwave background radiation on this planet. As the formulation of the atmosphere came about, this is what produced the evolutions within our DNA. Um, and then if we look at that, that is a range of three to 300 gigahertz. But if we know that the atmosphere, ionosphere, magnetosphere, the ground level, all of this has a profound effect on that, that we get this varying range of susceptibility between 28 to 35 gigahertz, which is the first channels of 5G, but it's also the receptability channel of your DNA in that gigahertz range. And so when we start looking at it like that, is that if we know that our solar system is moving through this higher energy potential, which means that it's going to increase cosmic ray bombardment onto this planet is what type of effect does that have specifically on DNA when you have more higher energy attenuation coming into your DNA? Is that going to unravel it, evolve it? Is that going to expand it? Is there because uh, I think that we all know there's conscious expansion, expansionist, conscious expansion happening on this planet right now. People are Absolutely. calling it the great awakening. Um, and it, 
it, it's interesting because it's not political in nature, even though it's been kind of hijacked by the political movement, um, that it, it's really you're finding it in all genres of society domains. Absolutely. That we have this point where people believe that we're evolving right now, but it's not physical evolving, it's conscious evolving. And I'm a proponent of this because I do believe that it's happening because I've experienced it firsthand. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm curious, I wanted to talk about DNA and I wanted your thoughts yeah. on DNA and I want to know what you know about DNA. I'm glad you got, we went down this road. Uh, so the thing that influenced me like a lot in, um, going into music was uh like if you're in a music festival or a concert even you can watching someone or a band control the emotion of an entire crowd of people and Mm -hmm. synchronizing that into one cohesive experience was uh you know everybody's probably been to one it's it's one of the best things about being a human it's it's links everything together music is as you know traveled across cultures and is something that links the entire species together um but the it, when you start to really get deep into it, you can you can tell what frequencies and what keys and what notes to play to evoke certain emotions. If you go to you know a uh, um, a very excited venue, you're gonna be you know it's gonna be more of a party happy atmosphere. If you go to a concert with someone who makes very sad music, you're gonna be in your feelings. You know it's it's um, it's a level of control using those frequencies. Now I'm gonna zoom back out a little bit. You're, when when children are born, they, they are imprinted in their DNA. It's a combination of the mother and father, but they're implement, implemented, imprinted. Their DNA, certain genes are activated depending on the moods and the um, chemicals that the mother is going through. It's transmitted through the placenta so that when that child is born, if it's, in, if it's born in a very hostile environment, there's going to be certain genes activated. If it's born in a very um, peaceful environment, it's, there's other genes that are going to be activated. And they've proven this with, with um, uh, many lab studies on this. And, yep. and um, epigenetics have, have evolved out of studies like that, where, where we can consciously turn on and off DNA, um, genes in our DNA, just by experience and, from what I can tell, frequency. Because, um, I mean, if you're, if you're in a very stressed out state of mind, like a, a mother is, a, you know, maybe a single mother who's living on the streets, and that, that, that child is going to come out very resilient to a lot of things you know it's got to it's got to you know fend for itself on a lot of things so so the fact that our dna is not only um has all that information to do that in there but is malleable is um something i've been really interested in for like 10 years now and um uh dr joe dispenza does a lot of really great work on this if you know who he is um but i i do believe that the the primary mechanism for that is the receiver transmitter interaction within the environment and my my one of my big things with cymatics is uh looking into the way that those frequencies interact and um can almost change a person i've known people that have got into like the uh uh edm scene that have become completely different people uh before they discovered it you know it's it's kind of changed their lives opened up spiritual doors opened up a whole bunch a new experience um uh, broaden their perspective of reality just by the music because it opens the door to the culture and opens the door to the to um, what we're talking about. You know, it, it's it's a very it's a gateway to an expanded way of thinking, in my opinion. So, um, but but going back to the DNA thing, your your parental history and ancestral history in general, if we think about that in terms of vibration as well. 
all of that uh, DNA, I think a gram can store like 215 petabytes of, yep. of information. We communicate with vibration, uh, binary, ones and zeros. If you think about a wave, we have a positive part of the wave and the negative part of the wave. You can transmit any amount of information through any wave. That's how cell phones work, TVs, radios, all of it works like that. So your your DNA is just a record of your you know lineage. Obviously, we've known this. This is hereditary. This is how we do that. But it's also a vibratory record of all of your experiences. And in my opinion, that's why we have deja vu or you resonate with certain types of music or you have a... A, a feeling that you're like, oh, this is nostalgia, but you never experienced that before. Maybe maybe that was part of your vibratory record contained in that DNA, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that, and then when you, you know, when you create a new life, then you have your record and the other person's record, fuse those together, and then that child has an even greater wealth of knowledge to pull from and a, a greater ability to turn those genes on and off. So I think when we start to use this, then that will unlock a lot of new things. I think that consciousness expands exponentially going down the generations for that reason, because there's just such a vast amount of data that is stored in everybody at this point, because we have such a long history of evolution that there's just a lot to pull from. That's where your instincts come from, you know, like, so, so if we're, if we're talking about that, then I think that DNA is, is probably the, it, like you said, it's the, it's the TV antenna that we have for, for, how consciousness can operate in this particular manifestation. I agree. I, I like it. And I look at it kind of um, as the transceiver of consciousness itself is that, um, you know, this is kind of a, not a newer revelation for me, but kind of more of a conceptual revelation is that uh, been doing a lot of studies on kind of uh, the, in, the inner work, right? Mm-hmm. And been doing a lot of meditation. And one of the, one of the recent revelations I had is we tend to think that we emanate our soul is with inside us and it expresses outwardly, even though that we're interconnected. Mm -hmm. But the idea came that our awareness is everything around us and that we're not on the inside expressing outward, but it's on the outside expressing inward. Yeah. And when you come to that revelation, now telepathy, telekinesis, all these things, quantum entanglement make tons of sense because your essence is quite literally everything in the expanse and it centralizes here mm -hmm. in this carnation. And then your DNA just becomes that receptibility of matter, that resonant factor of matter of that awareness taking state. Yeah. I, I totally agree. I think that, um, and, and that doesn't, I don't think it's limited to humans either. I think that there's a lot of what we would think of as maybe inorganic. I think um, minerals have a lot to do with this. If you look at mm -hmm. crystal lattice structures, it's, it's, you can store insane amount of data in, in crystals and, and holograms too are some of the craziest things ever. If you break, um, if you break a hologram down into, you know, 12 pieces, they're still going to have the same image they they will all show the same image. So the the memory capacity of things like crystals and water, I think, also need to be taken into account because you consume minerals for your you know for your health. And in water, we've obviously talked about has memory, and that we're eighty percent water. So we're we're receiving all of these inputs from the system, and then that DNA gives you kind of a framework and the ability to adapt to the environment to to optimally navigate through it using the inputs and outputs that you're constantly getting. And I think all of this, that whole system 
is kind of guided by the the how how close of a connection you have with the consciousness how how close of a uh how direct uh, how well a, you know yourself exactly yeah that's it itchum tenocious right yeah temenocious itchum tenocious the latin word for know yourself yeah um, which yeah i am who i am and it, it comes about I, I, and this is another point i wanted to talk about we're, we're coming up on time but we can just go a little bit over if you're okay um is Consciousness itself. So our, our body has these five sensory mechanisms, which are all electromagnetic in nature. Um, and I mean, I don't need to explain how your olfactory yeah. senses are electromagnetic in nature. It all comes about into your mind, which is electromagnetic in nature. It's electrical, bioelectrical, biochemical signals going back and forth between each other. When we reduce our senses we become into heightened states of awareness just like if you wear uh, you completely eliminate sound from your body you're going to have a heightened sense of sight and smell and taste because the brain processing power is going to increase towards those other senses because it might feel that you're in danger because you just lost your hearing um, yep. and so if you get rid of your sight and your hearing, which are 80% of your cognitive function, your, your conscious function, then you're going to increase your internal state of consciousness. And I've gone to these states a lot of times. And one of the methodologies I use for this is hemisync music at uh, the Monroe okay. Institute. What are your thoughts on that in the sense of music utilizing things like hemisync? And is EDM similar? Does it utilize similar components? Absolutely. I, I want to go into a couple things on that. So as far as Hemisync goes, I, I was introduced to that with the, the Gateway Project when they disclosed that, the CIA yep. papers on it, and um, tested that out. And I've, I've been a long-time meditator, but the, that – I did it in that, the 90s. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that technique uh, really unlocked a lot of doors. It, it kind of stepped up, I guess, my, my uh, level of meditation. And um, after that, I started looking into the power of how those frequencies work and how you can kind of tune your um, brain to react to those signals. And the more I looked into it, the more I, I realized that that is um, a lot of the nature of electronic music. It wasn't – we weren't able to reproduce that in the accuracy that we can now with traditional uh, instruments, especially when played live. You can't – it, as humans, it's very hard to sync that up, right? Right. But with a computer, I can, I can phase out those waves. I can, I can tune it to a specific frequency in both ears that's you know, going to sync your, sync your brain up. So, um, yeah, I, I, I do believe there's a lot of value there. And when you use it in the right ways, like I use, um, there's this, there's, I can't remember what frequency it is, uh, but I have it bookmarked on my YouTube and it's, I play it whenever I'm working and it's, it's a form of polyrhythmic music, which means you can't, your brain can't predict what's coming next. And it's paired with the binaural synchronization. And that, that gave me a level of focus I've never had before. And I use it almost every single day now, huh. but in terms of music. In terms of music, uh, what you were saying about the sensor senses and how uh, how you can really focus on the internal with that, uh, I I have a funny correlation there. When I don't know if you ever experimented with DMT, but um, with DMT you are completely immobile pretty much. When you when you take a dose high enough to to experience the what they call a blast off, you, you don't you're not in your body anymore. And it's, it's shutting off that that uh, that whole system that keeps you alive. It's saying, hey, you, we trust you. You're going to do what you do, but we need your consciousness, and we're taking it. We're going to do some stuff, right? Um, 
but the funny thing is it it's um a lot of people report that it dilates time a lot of um uh, your perception of time and that's a, that's a common phenomenon within um psychedelics and uh it's, it's another reason why it's very popular in the in the EDM community. It gets a bad rap for that just because it's, you know, associated with drugs. But it's just an evolution of the psychedelic rock from the, you know, late 60s, early 70s. It's just using new instruments. But what they did with that is, um, and I, I don't know if this was conscious or if it was accidental, but um, we, we can dilate BPM or we can dilate tempo or we can dilate a lot of these um, factors within the the production of EDM that when you pair it with psychedelics, it creates a I would say almost a gateway into um, a different realm of thought. So so I can within the music certain frequencies and certain uh, pitches and BPMs when you modulate them, it feels like it opens up a different um, uh, pathways in your head in your mm -hmm. in your brain for for processing information. And I feel like it shuts off a lot of the things that consume 90% of your thought. And when you enter these states, it allows you to think, you know, very openly, critically and outside the box of your normal thought. But uh, what I've been noticing, and I've done a lot of, you know, personal research myself, uh, is when you're making it, there's, there's certain frequencies and certain BPMs that are more effective at this and certain ones that are not. And the ones that, in my, in my opinion, are the most effective are the ones that are very, uh, I would say, pleasant, I guess, or put you in a state of mind that's very, wh whether that's courage and up, I would say, anything less than that kind of, uh, that's when people start to have, I would say, bad trips. But um, anything above that kind of gives you a different pers like, perception of what the artist is trying to say, or what, the, what the message, it communicates it directly instead of lyrics telling you what he's trying to say. You can kind of you can communicate that through um, almost thought transmission, and so that that's that's well, it's, it's almost like the the intention is translated into the vibration. Yes, exactly. And you're so you have to. I mean, the 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 sensory overload you get at, at festivals and concerts in general is enough to lock you into that. But you you pair that with the techniques that we talked about in terms of frequency, binaural synchronization, and all that stuff. You got all of your lasers, lights, and the best sound systems you ever heard, and then you also layer psychedelics on top of that. That's an experience that you can't really replicate anywhere else. And I think it's the easiest way for people to start getting in tune with the the more subtle natures of reality because it's something that is very easy. You can go with your friends to it. You can you can tell people about it, and you can show them the music. And the music isn't necessarily off putting. It sounds different, but but it's very interesting to look at when you look at it from that perspective instead of just oh it's a it's a party thing which sometimes it is but this is this is an entirely different layer and when you when you understand that and produce music you can create it a a immersive experience like like you've never seen before Absolutely. I, I grew up going to fish shows, fish concerts, oh, yeah. PHI, yeah. And I used to trip my nuts off at them and uh that's where I really got introduced <laughs> to how music moves. And what I mean by that, and for those listening, I've talked about this in the sense of how we communicate, is that there's this process of what I call intention attention of how we communicate. 
And the way I define attention is imagine a lasso going around an object. You pull it tight. The object doesn't move, but there's a stress on the line. There's a tension on the line, a line of tension between you and whatever that is. So that's where attention comes from. And then you have an intention. An intention is a stress that you make towards an imaginative aspect of yourself. And that intention is aligned with some type of emotional component, whether end state, future state probable state, whatever it might be. And when we communicate those intentions, what we're doing is we're translating them between that line of relationship between us and another human being. And so as our voice comes out and that compression wave goes by their ear and induces the the eardrum to vibrate, producing the electrical signals, is that compression wave that's coming out, the acoustic wave is a carrier wave of your intention. So you have your intention that is aligned with that in the vibrational form and that we can actually communicate that way. And we do that with body language. We do that with, uh, you know, in, in other aspects of telepathy. We do that with uh, how we look at each other and how we smile and all this stuff. That's kind of what that transitory nature is. And so when I started learning fish or going to fish shows, I noticed that the guitarist was able to translate a story through the notes of the guitar and that it wasn't just notes but it was him speaking to you intentionally through the guitar. And when you realize that what you're listening to is a musical story, it's profound. And then you understand nature when you go out and sit in the middle of the woods and you realize you're hearing a, a natural symphony speaking its story. And you start hearing it everywhere. And once you have it, you, you can't undo it. So I, I'm really interested in EDM now. I'm going to have to check yeah, this out. Yeah, yeah if you like fish and that, that psychedelic rock era, you're going to love all, all, everything that's going on now. It's like a uh, – it's just the next evolution in that you know journey. And I think that, that you're right with the attention, intention thing. The, the in, attention needs to be – you have to grab attention. And I think it's very effective at grabbing attention because – these sounds have never been produced before in history. You know, they're not, we're not using guitars or anything. We're, we're literally playing a computer and speakers. That is our instrument. So I think that in doing that, we grab a lot of attention because people are like, what the hell was that sound? And that attention then allows us to open up the gateway to intention where we can tell our story and we can, you know, share our experience of reality in a way that people haven't really experienced before. Yeah. Um, curious. So, Man, what was I about to say? I, I think it was pertaining to... Oh, no. You ever heard of John Hutchinson and the Hutchinson effect? Uh-uh. Okay, so John Hutchinson, back in the 1990s, he used a VHS recorder, um, and he lived in Canada, but he bought a whole bunch of surplus U.S. Navy radio equipment, VHF, uh, uh, SHF type of equipment. And he just started messing around with different... Uh, um, transmitters with objects and he was able to levitate bowling balls metal would just disintegrate in front of your eye and he videotaped this and the government actually came in and confiscated all of his stuff and so he went got more stuff and then came back and was able to recreate it again and the government actually came up to him and said how the fuck are you doing this and he goes well let me show you and he turns all the equipment on and none of it worked and he couldn't figure out and never worked again. He said he was never able to repeat the process. He knows all the frequencies, never able to repeat the process. Um, and so I started watching the videos and I said, oh, I noticed something. And I'm curious if you've ever done this with your, with your music. Is we can think about it in the sense of frequency, of how that integrates together. But have we ever thought about it as well as directional geometry? Is that the positioning of where these speakers are pointing 
and how they're pointing, what parts of the body they're pointing at, the directional aspect of the vibration and where it is pointed to fall into the context of the effect that it's going to have on it. Because that's what John Hutchinson, I believe he was doing wrong, is that he had his transmitters basically transmitting towards the devices at various different angles. And then on the second time, they're very similar, but on the third time, they're skewed. And so there is directional geometry going on there that he wasn't repeating the second time around. And it would be easily overlooked by a lab scientist. Well, we we already touched on a little topic uh, or aspect of this, which is phasing. If you, if, if you have a wave and it's, it's a perfect harmonic, it ends where it begins, right? If I move this a millimeter out, then it's not harmonic anymore. And if you think about in cymatics, if I have a, uh, if I'm doing the, the water cymatics, I have a Petri dish on top of a speaker and I put the water in it and I resonate that Petri dish at, let's say 144 Hertz, that Petri dish is going to make a specific shape, right? But if I get another Petri dish and it's bigger and I resonate it at 144 Hertz, it's not going to resonate with the amount of water and the size of the Petri dish in the same way. So it's going to create a different shape. So the, what the shape that resonated with the smaller one won't necessarily resonate with the larger one. And then mm-hmm. you can, if you want to take that onto a whole spectrum of stuff, what liquid are you using? What are you using a glass Petri dish or a plastic Petri dish? All of these are very specific frequencies and each, each object has its own geometry within those frequencies. That's why you, opera singers can smash a glass because they can, you know, they find that frequency within their voice. They feel right. it vibrate in their hand and they amplify the signal breaking the glass. So there's a lot of, of intricate knowledge that goes into that. And there's a very broad field of, of cymatics now in the last 20 years that's dealing with how, how can we do that? I made a video about inverting the frequency of uh, the, the resonant frequency of a cell and destroying that cell for cancer yep. research. That's, that's one application. There's well, many Professor Hollander did all that research exactly. in 2013, 2014. He is, nobody wow. knows where the hell that guy is. Uh, Royal Rife. Royal Rife. John Keeley, all of them. Yeah, yep. they're... John Keeley Morrill. Yeah. Oh man, I, I haven't heard that name in a long time. That, that's been, a good I've one. Been very deep into Keeley. I think Keeley is a very, very intricate you... piece of this puzzle that no one is looking at right now. Do you go to Keeley.net or yeah. uh, I, uh, Dale Dale Pond? Right. Pond. Yeah. Pond. He had that uh, that machine that he bought off that guy, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I watched Pond stuff, and he's got. Um, his analysis of, of Keeley's work is really, really good. I think it needs a little update and, and a little bit more of a simplification. But the way that that he was explaining the function and the um, how Keeley was tapping into like you know zero point energy, I guess if you want to call it, or um, like the the scalar waves that Tesla was talking about, that it seems like he's on the right track. And that the vibration that we were talking about, I think it, I think all those machines could only be operated by Keeley because he knew a certain frequency to turn them on well that's you, right but it was a water hammer yeah water so, hammer so, with, yeah but but so do you understand what it was doing in the resonant cavity yeah yeah sono, sonoluminescence yeah so he's producing sonoluminescence within these machines and that was what producing the high energy state that was coming out of it so it was a methodology to actually uh capture the sonoluminescence happening yep. within the water hammer I think that machine that that Pond bought off him had four different types of of ways that he was using scalar waves to do that. And that's why he couldn't calculate how much energy it produced because all of them calculated infinitely. 
Right. Like if you if you let a if we have optimal conditions for a water hammer, it can go to infinite energy, right? Like it's right. just amplifying the well wind. to to the to the parameters of the object that it's exactly, resonating yeah. within. In, in ideal yeah. conditions, with you know a, an immovable object and yeah. an unlimited modern form. science systems, right? Yes, exactly <laughs> theoretical systems. But I think yeah, I think that's what he was on to is 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 he he knew the power of that technology and he designed it in a way that only he could operate it, which would essentially save humanity from killing themselves. Right. That's well, the way I look at it, but I, I can't believe you brought that up. John Keeley world, because I mean that in the like 1998, I was talking to Dale pond back in the day. We, we collaborated early on. So I used to collaborate with a lot of the coast to coast audience, uh, um, George Norrie and them. We used to be in an email change, uh, um, Richard Hoagland, we I just go back and forth talking hyperdimensional physics and <laughs> Dale Pond. I was talking to him about John Keeley yeah. Worrell. Um, then you had the Royal Rife stuff. You oh, have man, um, yeah. uh, Schallenberger, Tesla. Tesla. Obviously, yeah. I was actually, I was just at a medical conference down in Dallas this last weekend. And uh, a lot of people there were talking about Royal Rife and they're talking about, how oh, I got my Rife machine. I've got my Rife machine. That's not a Rife machine. That's well, not- that, it's a Rife machine. I'm like, <laughs> I said, show me, show me your plasma, show yeah. me your plasma gun. They show me an enclosed plasma ball that they just keep close to the body, which resonates the frequency off. I said, that's not, that's not rice plasma gun. He had a cold plasma gun that he literally puts it on your body at that area. And then does the reverse resonant of the cells causing those cells to shatter. That's what he was using. Yep. He's like, Oh, well, you know, I said, well, nobody makes them. That's the problem is nobody knows how sure. to make them the way. It's a great value rice machine. Yeah. Well, I mean, there, there's similar technology. I, I, I've actually seen some cold plasma um, um, guns come out today that you can get them. And, and it means you can buy them off of fucking Amazon right yeah. now. Cold plasma gun. You can buy it. You load up your helium. It produces your cold plasma. It's at the right frequency. You can go it and go grab um, Rife's frequency book. You can go ahead and put them in there. You can get your own frequency generator, hook it up to it. And, and you're good. You got your own Rife machine. Um but man, you're gonna have to tell me what you find on uh, um, John Keeley because, firstly, Dale Pond. I think Dale Pond passed away. Yeah. And so that website that's up there will not be up there very long. So if you can get in there and get those PDFs off of it, that would be fantastic because there's just a, such a wealth of information on there. And uh, Dale Pond, for anybody that doesn't know, he's the curator of the John Keeley World Museum, and uh, I want to say it's in South Colorado. But uh, he's got three different prototypes of John Keeley World's water hammer machine, which was basically a, an electric generator. Um, and these things, he's only got Dale Pond's only gotten them working once, and he doesn't even know how that happened. But he reverse engineered them, looked at the physics of them. And Dale Pond is a classically trained physicist. He was a physics professor at the local schools and uh, just an absolute genius in the sense of how he takes them apart. Uh, but he put a wealth of knowledge and information up there on, I, I believe it's Keeley.net, if the website is even still up there. Yeah. Um, but just, it, it's the, the Tesla of the 19th century that you never heard of, I assure you. Just, yeah. That was a recent discovery for me, and I was blown away. That's been one of my very intense research topics lately is is going into that stuff because it's it's not only suppressed it's like almost frowned upon to mention keely kind of like yeah. tesla used to be but like i think i think the tesla um hype right now is going to be uh keely hype in the future um i kind of agree 
it's um, just not very it's not very well known and i think people once they look into it they're like what it's, it doesn't make a lot of sense but he was on something you know it, maybe what we should do is and if you're doing research on that uh we should come back and do a show we'll, we'll do keely we will do edley scalen and we'll do tesla oh, we'll do yeah. we'll do rife we'll do uh 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 Townsend Brown will do, you know, we'll do these greats and go through them. And even Buckminster Fuller, I think that's where that quote was, is that yeah. architecture is nothing more than frozen sound. Uh, Buckminster Fuller. Uh, but we're out of time. We were over time. That's fine. <laughs> but I had a, this is a great conversation. Yeah, man, and great the great audience great, man. is absolutely really loving it. So I, I want to have you back and uh, we'll get that scheduled and we, maybe we can talk more about this. Is there's, we, we only touched the surface of this conversation. Yeah, was, uh, there was a lot of stuff that I feel like we could have expanded upon. Oh, there's so much. And we, we, but I would yeah. like to get into the, the, the technology, technology side next time. So uh, Tesla, Worrell. So I'm, I'm excited about that. Schollenberger is another one. Yeah. So guys, scheduled. absolutely. So guys, if you want to go visit Tyler here, what I want you to do is you can find a lot of his information on link pop and I'm going to put the link right here in the chats. So you guys can go that. And in there he has, I'll go ahead and show this to you guys. Um, he has a few eBooks. They're, they're $10 a piece. I actually just picked these up and they're, they're, they're loaded full of information and it, it's great explanations. Lots of visual diagrams or 10 bucks a piece. You can find them at that link that I'm putting in the chat right now. It's also linked up in the rumble uh, description box. And so hidden history, harmonic alchemy and vibrational unity. These are three great books that you can pick up from him. He's also got some other stuff on here. I believe you got some music. Um, you could also, you have a website, don't you? That you yeah. Can go to? Uh baseforge.us and then i'm i'm active almost every day on tiktok posting all my new stuff um and i'll have a new book next week coming out on consciousness a lot of stuff we were talking about today too so perfect dude well i loved it and like i just said i picked up your three books and i've been going through them and I, i'm someone who is well versed in in occult and alchemy and in hermeticism and in the esoteric and i absolutely love them i thought they were fascinating they're a really good read and that it's really good information for people who are looking for that in-depth understanding but something that's easy to correlate with visual diagrams to show you how all this works because i mean i you get into like robert ant and wilson and chaos theory and all this type of stuff and like, it's all over the place. Uh, Walter yeah. Russell. Have you ever gotten into Walter Russell? Oh, yeah. It's, uh, I got Matt Presty. Yeah. Matt Presty is one of my buddies who is the former president of the Walter Russell, um, um, Walter Russell Museum, as well as the Walter Russell College. Oh, and okay. uh, he's probably the foremost expert on Walter Russell. So what I can do, I'll bring him in. Us three will do oh, a show great. together. That'd be awesome. Great. But all right, guys. Base Forge. Awesome show, Cymatics Vibration Conscious Technology. If you guys want to find him, the links are out there. Please go check him out, purchase those books, and also give him a follow on TikTok and like those videos because his videos on TikTok are fascinating. So much, until next time, uh, for everybody on Social Red Pill, socialredpill.com, our private social network, go on over there. We'll be, I'll be in there in about 15 minutes, but the After Dark chat, the Fringe After Dark starts immediately, so you can go ahead and join that Zoom call. I'll be on in about 15 minutes. Much love, respect. God bless you guys. You guys take care. Have a great night. Thank we'll you see guys. you guys. Appreciate you, man. Good night.